This evening we're having a look at Daniel chapter 5. Uh, it can be found on page 890 of the Bibles that are in the chairs in front of you. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers and diviners then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale his nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. And he did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you, Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your Majesty, 
The Most High God gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from the people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parsim. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Thank you, Sarah. That was beautifully read. It's such an exciting story, isn't it? Daniel chapter five, the writing on the wall, the creepy ghostly fingers. Let's, um, let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chapter of Daniel. We thank you that it is an exciting story and yet it reveals something of you, something of your greatness, your majesty, and something, Lord, too, that you are not a God to be trifled with. And we pray that you would help us here this evening, thousands of years later on, to catch a glimpse of that same God, to see you through the eyes of faith and to believe in the same way and to serve you as Daniel did. May you help us to understand this, your word, this evening. Amen. If you've got your Bibles or your digital apparatus if you'd like to turn to this this chapter and we'll go through it together last week in chapter 4 we we learned about God's mercy Nebuchadnezzar as we as we learned from this chapter was quite a nasty piece of work with, with, with authority like like nobody's business he could do whatever, whatever he liked and he did it and he wasn't the nicest of characters and 
And, and yet God, who placed him in that position, also took that away from him. Nebuchadnezzar, the top dog in Babylon, and Babylon was, was an empire like no other. This top dog was taken down. God took away everything from Nebuchadnezzar, even his mind. Uh, and this humbling experience brought the, this mighty king to a different viewpoint of life. He humbled himself that he wasn't the greatest, he wasn't the top dog, but that he came to realize that it was God, the maker of heaven and earth. He was the one under which he must humble himself. And right at the end there in, in verse 37 of chapter 4, it kind of sets the scene. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right. All his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And we ended our service last week humbling ourselves under God's mighty hand and, and submitting ourselves to God to do with us as he pleases. So, so last week we, we learned about God's mercy to a very undeserving man. He came out and he came to realize, and I'm sure his latter years when he was restored, he was a better king, a greater king, a more merciful king than ever he was before. So we, we learned last week about God being a merciful God. And this week in chapter 5, we see that God is a God of judgment and a God of wrath, not to be trifled with. I think the theme of this morning's service was, was judgment. And here we are again under the fire of God's judgment, as it were. We're going to be roasted today, I think, by the end of it. But we see here something of our God. We, we've kind of lost the balance a little bit between God's love and God's wrath and his judgment. And, and the Old Testament in particular and the New reveals to us a God who is holy beyond our, our, our imagination. So that's what we're going to learn this evening about God's wrath God's judgment. But against that, we, we see, like with a rainbow, a rainbow is see, seen far better against a dark, dark background, isn't it? Against the darkness of the storm and against the darkness of God's wrath and judgment, we see his love and his grace and his mercy in a greater way. So that when we come to the table later on, it's even more wonderful for us because we as a people have been forgiven. So we have a new king on the throne in Babylon. His name is Belshazzar. We'll find out more about him later as we go through the text. But, but like the pre-humbled Nebuchadnezzar, he is a proud, arrogant, and violent, and almost top dog man in Babylon. And unlike Nebuchadnezzar, he refused to humble himself. He defied God. He mocked God. And he was judged by God as a result. In many ways, it's a, it's a sobering passage that is before us that, that has a lot to say to our current generation. A lot to say. So let's just trust that God would speak to us, humble us under his mighty hand. I've divided it into five bits. There are, there are five people that we meet in this passage. First of all, we meet the king, Belshazzar, in verses 1 to 4. Then, then we meet the ghostly fingers in verses 5 to 9. Then we meet the queen in verses 10 to 12. Then Daniel in verses 13 to 30. And finally, Darius, just one little, little verse, we meet him. So let's look at this together. 
The king, verses 1 to 4, Belshazzar is now king in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is gone. He's been replaced by his son, but maybe he's not his son. He could be his grandson, or he could be another close relative. We don't know, and in, in the great scheme of things, it doesn't really matter. He's referred to here, Nebuchadnezzar, as your father, but that could mean many things, like some close relative or your granddad or whatever it might be. Belshazzar is a deputy king. He's a co-king. The other king, possibly his father, is Nabonidus. He's the number one in charge. Hence, when Daniel is given the, the, this, this great promise, or, or the, 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 the wise men, you'll be third in the kingdom, because I'm second. I'm second in command. So Nabonidus, um, Belshazzar's father, he's the number one in charge. He would have had the final world word. And probably Nebuchadnezzar was away fighting with the vast Babylonian army, and Belshazzar was left in charge of the palace and the city. And what is he doing? Verse 1, he's having a massive party, a good drink festival, a great banquet, it says in verse 1. And, and by the way that it's described that there are the there are the, the, the queens and there are the concubines there. There's going to be more than drinking that goes on in this party. And, and, and that's what is emphasized very much, this, this worldliness of, of King Belshazzar, this massive party. And in verse 2, we see that as he, as he warms himself up in the drink, he gives orders to bring in the gold and the silver goblets that once belonged in the Jerusalem temple. Goblets that were sacred that were devoted to God, to God Almighty. And what we see in verses 2 and 3, the nobles, the wives, the concubines, all drank from them. And twice this is emphasized, it's important, we need to get hold of this, that not only was, was the King Belshazzar being ridiculous in his blasphemy, but he got everybody, these thousand nobles, involved in this, this orgy, and they were disobeying, they were taking God's sacred things. And they were using them for very unsacred things. They, as they drank, they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze, iron, wood and stone. They were doing a terrible thing. They were mocking the God of Israel. And this was blasphemy in the highest order. God is not mocked. Not at all. And King Belshazzar had crossed a very, very dangerous line. And, and what happens next brings the riotous party that's going on to a juddering halt because in verses 5 to 9, we meet the ghostly fingers. Suddenly, verse 5, it says, you can imagine the noise in the party, then suddenly on the wall, the, these fingers of a human hand appeared and, and start to inscribe a message on the plaster wall. They're inscribed in there, a place well lit by the lampstand. And the king watched as it wrote, Instantly, the party mood disappeared and the loud, the boastful, the vulgar king was terrified. His face went pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and were knocking. I remember as, as a young boy, must have been about nine or ten, and we'd been given the, the task at school of rewriting in modern English the Lord's Prayer. And for some unknown reason, my rendering was considered to be the best. And my reward was to stand up in front of the morning assembly and to pray it before the whole school. Public speaking or public praying was not my idea of fun. 
And like Belshazzar, I was terrified. And in my little shorts in front of the whole school, my knees knocked. And that, honestly, they genuinely were knocking together. And there was nothing I could do about it. I couldn't stop them knocking. Thankfully, in those days, when people prayed, their eyes were closed. And in my days at school, which was all in black and white, if you didn't um, do what you were told, you were either shot or fed to the pit ponies. It was that long ago. But um, thankfully, I did my prayer, I sat down, and that was it. But every time I read this passage of poor Belshazzar, his knees in the authorized version, it said, smote one against the other. That um, the terrified king, literally, he is terrified, calls in the astrologers, the enchanters, the diviners, the wise men of Babylon to read and interpret the words on the wall. But they couldn't. They couldn't read it, they couldn't interpret it, despite the promise of such a vast reward. Why couldn't they read it? Why couldn't they interpret it? We don't know. But everyone in the room was baffled by what was going on. Enter the next character, verses 10 to 12. The queen, on hearing the voices, the kerfuffle, probably the screaming from the banqueting hall, the queen comes in, and probably she's the queen mother because we're told then that the queen and the concubines were already in the party. So it's probably the queen mother or Nabonidus's wife. She comes in, she's heard the row going on. She sees the whitened face of the king and tries to calm him. And on hearing that the wise men are unable to help, she reminds the king of Daniel. There is a man in your kingdom, this is verse 11, who served under your father Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, he was the chief wise man. He is able to interpret dreams and solve difficult problems. Call him, he will help. And, and Daniel by now was older. Some say he was in his 80s. He was no longer among the court wise men. He was in retirement, bless his heart. And then here he is, obviously living close by. He's called in. I think older folks here, here's a word for us. There is no such thing in retirement in the kingdom of God. And we never know when God may call us out of what may seem like retirement into active service again. It was C.H. Spurgeon, the great Victorian preacher, that once said, if the Lord puts you on the shelf for a while, pray that he keeps you well oiled. I think, isn't that good advice? Pray that he keeps you well oiled so that you're ready to be taken off the shelf and put straight into service of God again. So gray-haired folks among us tonight, check your oil that it's all okay and ready to go. Just a thought to cast out and to those online too. So finally we go, next, the next person, not finally, penultimately we come to Daniel, verses 13 to 30. And, and the bulk of chapter 5 is devoted to Daniel. Daniel is God's prophet, God's man, God's messenger to King Belshazzar. So verse 13, Daniel, so Daniel was brought before the king. And then the king speaks to him. And you can almost sense the, the drunken drawl going on when he speaks to Daniel. Oh, are you Daniel? One of, one of the exiles brought from Judah by my father. I've heard about you and, and what you're able to do. You can give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, I'll give you a rich reward and make you the third highest ruler in Babylon. Daniel then speaks, and he speaks with, with the confidence 
and the authority of an old and righteous man, a servant of God, a prophet of the living God. Keep your gifts and give your rewards to somebody else. Verse 17, Daniel's ministry is not up for sale. I think, again, there's a lesson here for folks in Christian service who seek rewards for what they're doing, either in money or in position. It happens, sadly. Dare to be a Daniel, the old song, needs to be sung out loudly in the halls of ecclesiastical power and learning. We don't do it for the money. We don't do it for the prestige. It's done for the glory of God. So Daniel tells the king the meaning of the words. He is able to read and interpret them. And he first of all reminds Belshazzar of what happened to his father, which surely Belshazzar, he would have known about that. Daniel reminds him of how that God Almighty had raised Nebuchadnezzar to a position of great power and authority, the highest position over all the nations and people. He was feared by all. What he wanted to do, he did. But when his heart became arrogant and was hardened with pride, in verse 20, he lost everything, his mind, his position, his power. And it was not until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and sets them over anyone he wishes, verse 21, that he was restored to sanity and restored to rule. But you, Belshazzar, you have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. You knew that. Instead, you have ridiculed and made a mockery of this God by bringing his sacred goblets, using them to the praise and worship of gods who are not gods at all. You didn't honor the living God who holds your life and your destiny in his hands. And because of this, because of what you have done, he, he sent, God sent the hand that wrote the words on the wall. And this is what they say, and this is what they mean. Mene, mene, tekel, parson is what they say. And this is the interpretation. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. You've been weighed in the scales of God's justice and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and to the Persians. I think if Belshazzar's face was pale before Daniel spoke, it would have been paler now. Because here speaks a word of execution to him. Yet true to his word, Daniel was given the reward, the high position that he never really wanted, because God had got further work for him to do, and he needed to be in that position. Then finally in verse 31, the executioner comes in, Darius, that very night. There was no delay in carrying out the sentence. Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, was slain. The great empire of Babylon was over. Another empire begins, that of the Medes and the Persians. And Darius, possibly a senior man in the court of Cyrus or an army captain, he takes over the kingdom at the age of 62. Why we're told that he took it over at the age of 62, perhaps Nick can explain that to us at some other stage. But it's there. He took over the kingdom at the age of 62. In the space of just a few hours, Belshazzar had gone from wild party drunkard to the grave. How the mighty have fallen under the mighty hand of God. So ends chapter five of Daniel. Belshazzar and Babylon have gone. But Daniel carries on, old man that he is, because God's work for him isn't over yet. In fact, his greatest moment is yet to come. 
his most famous moment, Daniel in the lion's den, is yet to come, chapter 6. What a powerful, what a frightening narrative passage this is, isn't it? So what lessons can we draw from it tonight? Is it relevant to us here in the 21st century, those of us in the building, those listening online? Uh, yeah, I think it is. And I think the screaming lesson is that God is not mocked. Our living God, whom we worship and we rejoice in and love and serve, is not mocked. To honor God is to obey him and to humble ourselves under his rule and command, like Daniel did, like Nebuchadnezzar did. Now, we live in a society, you don't need me to tell you this, and a religious culture that openly mocks God. Things done, things said, things encouraged, things celebrated, things promoted are far, far away from the moral law that God has laid down as the pattern of life for everybody. The law that was written on the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, and also written deep within the heart of every single person. Like Belshazzar, we know we're wrong. We're without excuse before God, it says in Romans. We, we might say, oh, but I never knew, I never knew. You do, because God has put that in your hearts. And like Belshazzar, rather than being humbled by that knowledge, we openly defy and we mock the living God. We, we take the holy things and we use them to the praise of other gods. And we have a legacy, don't we, of faith in this nation particularly from our fathers who, who, who was laid down. We've got books galore and testimonies galore of, of, a, of a nation that was brought up under, the, under the, the goodness of God. Our history, our laws, our culture have been built on a foundation of godly Christian values. That's what our nation was built upon. We have a Bible-based worldview that used to be at the heart of our schools, our universities, our government, and our religious life too. But sadly, it no longer is. You don't have to be blind to see that, to see the shift in what's going on. It's hard not to be discouraged as a Christian. It really is. The tide is against us. The flow is not on our side at all. It seems like the walls of godliness and biblical truth have been dismantled before our eyes and the enemy is coming in like a flood. Society as we know it, to, in our eyes, is going down the pan and going down rapidly, and church and state. So, so what are we to do? Sit there and watch it happen? No, I think that the message of this chapter and the message of Daniel and of the scripture as a weight in the whole, because Daniel lived through such a time, the nation of Israel was a great nation, massively great nation under Solomon, David, and here is now the, Israel, the nation of Israel has gone. They're taken into exile, but God has got his man in there. They're taken into captivity, and, and, but Daniel was able to see beyond the scene to the unseen world. He was, he was able to, to be calm and strong, faithful and true to the living God because God is sovereign. Sovereign Babylon was a big and a powerful nation only because God had made it so. Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar were kings only because God had raised them up for that task. And now Babylon was swept away, what by? By the hand of God. And so we, I think, in this ungodly generation, we must look beyond the scene, what we, what we see and what is quite discouraging to us all, the seemingly collapse 
of Christian morality, the downfall, it seems, of biblical Christianity that has reigned for hundreds of years. How can we take courage? How, to, how can we take comfort? Come with me to the end times. Come with me to the, the, the midst of the, the apocalyptic struggles in Revelation. Because here is a very apt and helpful little verse. In chapters 13 and 14 of Revelation, towards the end of time as we know it, it would seem that Satan has defeated the people of God. But all's not what it seems. This defeat is not a defeat at all. It's just temporary. Because all is not lost. And, and, and the, the writer to the Revelation there, John says, it's a time, this is a time that calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Isn't that a picture of Daniel? Patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. And shortly after that, in chapter 14, the Lamb appears in glory, in power, and might, and with him are his people, those purchased from among mankind and belonging to him. It's judgment time. And what does the angel cry out? Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. That great picture of worldliness. It's gone, it's fallen, cries the angel. That great power that made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. And again, the call goes out for patient endurance on the part of God's people, those who keep his commands and those who remain faithful to Jesus. Are we ready to heed that call, to be faithful to Jesus, to be sure and certain of him? What does that mean in reality? It means to trust, to trust living our lives in absolute faith in our God. He is with us. Christ is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We live in trust. We're on the winning side. Might seem like we're being defeated. We're not. God is not mocked. Secondly, we need to rest. Crumbs, how can you rest? We can. We rest in Christ. We rest in what he's done. We rest in him, the spirit living in our hearts. We rest in the knowledge that Jesus is the King of kings. God is not mocked. We serve. We serve faithfully. Faithfully. Like never before, strengthening our feeble arms and our weak knees in obedience to Christ our King. And finally, we fight. We fight not with the weapons of the world, but with God's weapons that are able to demolish strongholds and arguments of all kinds and types. Patient endurance, keeping God's commands, faithful to Jesus, just like Daniel. Let's pray. Father God, we know that, that such a call is beyond our ability, but we call upon a God who gives generously. Grant us, we pray, patient endurance. Help us to keep your commands and help us to be faithful to our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.